Hi, this is Dr. Lat Mansour, your host on HVMM Podcast. In this episode, I interview Dr. Paul Saladino, who is also better known as Carnivore MD. He is a leading authority on the science and application of the carnivore diet and animal-based diets. He has used these diets to reverse autoimmune issues, chronic inflammation, and mental health issues in hundreds of patients. He's also the author of best-selling books, The Carnivore Code and The Carnivore Code Cookbook. He is the host of the top 10 podcast, Fundamental Health, and can be found on, featured on numerous podcasts, including The Joe Rogan Experience and Meat Eater. He has also appeared on The Doctor's TV show and on many other prominent media outlets. In this episode, we talked about the pros and cons of the carnivore diet and animal-based diet. We also dove very deeply into insulin resistance, metabolic dysfunction, and the role of seed oils in propagating these dysfunctions. Dr. Saladino also explained why not all lipids are made the same and the different roles of lipids or fats in our bodies besides providing us with energy. I can assure you that this is a science-packed episode for you to enjoy, so stay tuned. Hello, Paul. We've got Dr. Paul Saladino here today at HBMM Podcast, Carnivore MD. Welcome. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. I know that you've been on HBMM Podcast before when Jeff interviewed you, so thank you for coming back. And I also know they've got, you know, you've gone through some transformation from carnivore diet 1.0 to 2.0. I am very excited to talk about it. Yeah, yeah, we can totally talk about that and all kinds of new stuff. I mean, we're always evolving and exploring and learning new things. And so it's fun to, uh, it's fun to talk about all the evolution. Great. So let me start off by asking you this question. What is your current health and fitness obsession? What are you obsessed with right now that is uh, related to health and fitness? So I think that the current health and fitness obsession is seed oils, vegetable oils, corn, canola, sunflower, safflower, grapeseed, peanuts. Um, these are the common oils that are in almost everything in our food system. And I've always been interested in kind of the, the holy grail of health and nutrition, the unifying equation. And if there is one thing that I think looks extremely culpable in causing the majority of chronic decrepitude, illness, I think it's these seed oils and the excess amounts of linoleic acid they contain, which create an evolutionarily inappropriate situation for humans. And, and then they have these breakdown products like HNE, 4-hydroxynonanol, which look really, really bad for humans. So I've been thinking a lot about seed oils and going pretty far down that rabbit hole recently. That is amazing. I would love to get, get really deep into, into that area as well, because being a biochemist and physiologist myself, um, it's, it's great to hear insight from you know, physicians like yourself. So before we go further, let's, I, I mean, I'm sure you, know, you don't need any introduction here, but for the sake of our listeners um, who are listening here, tell us your story, your background, who you are. Um, I'm sure a lot of them already know you, but go ahead, please. So I'm a traditionally trained physician. I went to medical school at the University of Arizona. Prior to medical school, I was a physician assistant. I worked in cardiology for four years. Pretty quickly as a cardiology PA, I realized that the Western medical system was broken, especially being inside of it. I could see that it was mostly symptom-focused and pharmaceutical-based. We were really just treating what patients presented with, with medications. For whatever reason, we can talk about this if you want to touch on this later in the podcast, there's not a lot of focus in mainstream medical education, either at the physician assistant or medical doctor level regarding the root cause of illness. 
And we're very happy, even though all the physicians that I've ever worked with are well-intentioned and extremely intelligent, we're just all too happy as medical doctors and healthcare providers to give people pills and to look a little bit sideways with regard to the side effects and kind of pat ourselves on the back. So I was a PA in cardiology, wasn't satisfied with what I was doing. I think I'm more of an engineer at heart um, rather than uh, maybe a doctor, but I was really interested in understanding how it all worked together and what was causing the problem. So I went back to medical school at the University of Arizona. That's where there's a center for integrative medicine. So I thought it would be a good place to study medicine. Didn't really turn out as good as I'd hoped. Then I did residency at the University of Washington in Seattle. And at that point, I had a number of recurring health issues. Specifically, I had autoimmune illnesses, asthma and eczema. And I was doing multiple dietary iterations at the time. Paleo, previously, maybe 15 years ago. From this point, I was vegan. Then paleo, eczema continues. Then eventually in residency, I cut out all the plants, the fruits and vegetables from my diet, did a carnivore diet, which was interesting, meat and organs and fat. Got very interested in, in that and the idea behind the differences between certain parts of plants, the fruit versus the leaves, stems, roots, and seed, the latter uh, four things I would clarify to, I would, I would say those are vegetables canonically. Uh, and then after about a year and a half on carnivore, I'd had improvements in eczema, improvements in mood, but I started to have pretty significant issues regarding long-term ketosis for me uh, personally. I had muscle cramps, I had sleep disturbance, I had uh, probably hypothyroidism at some level, and I had declining testosterone. So I incorporated carbohydrates back into my diet in the form of fruit and honey, things that I think of as the least toxic carbohydrates, not really defended, not really full of plant chemicals. So that's been about a, maybe two and a half years that I've been doing that. I would call it an animal-based diet. So it's like carnivore meat, organs, animal fat, with fruit, with honey, and maybe in the last year and a half, raw dairy. So at this point, I'm a physician. Um, I'm board certified. I don't see patients. I spend the majority of my time researching and making educational stuff for people to find on Instagram and other platforms, YouTube. And then I have a podcast, which is called Fundamental Health. And it's fun to be at that part of my career because I think that it, it's really interesting to have conversations like this and think more deeply about these things with a long-term goal being to affect the mainstream medical system in a big way and to, to get information out to a much broader audience than I probably could seeing one patient at a time every day, which is a valiant thing, um, but it probably wasn't uh, what I needed to be doing. Right. And, and let's unpack that a little bit more uh, in terms of when you did carnivore, carnivore diet for the first time and, and you've had problems with prolonged ketosis. Let's dive deeper into the physiological change, the metabolic change. Why do you think that is the case? What is the problem with it? And why does in reintroducing carbs back into your diet solve that problem? I think there are multiple levels to address this at um, physiologically. The first is probably the what appears to be critical nature of insulin at the level of the kidney in resorbing electrolytes, sodium, potassium, magnesium. Many electrolytes get resorbed at different parts of the kidney, whether it's the loop of Henle or the descending tubules or whatever. And I was never taught this in medical school, but insulin is valuable and imperative at the kidney to resorb those electrolytes. Now, there's a difference between having appropriate postprandial levels of insulin after you eat food with carbohydrates and protein in it 
and having insulin resistance, which we can talk about because that'll loop back into the conversation with seed oils. Insulin is a peptide hormone. I'm sure most of the listeners know that. That gets a bad rap, but I think in a metabolically healthy individual, it's a very, very important hormone to leverage. And the way that you leverage it is by including carbohydrates in your diet, uh, primarily. Protein will have some of an insulin response. Fat doesn't really have much of an insulin response at all. Technically speaking, insulin is not anabolic. It's mostly anti-catabolic, but it has many important actions in the human body, that being one of them. It also is connected with epigenetics. It affects the way our genes are transcribed. It's connected with our antioxidant system. It looks to affect glutathione, glutathione peroxidase, and important antioxidant enzymes. It appears to also affect sex hormone binding globulin. When I was in full ketosis for a year and a half, my SHBG, my sex hormone binding globulin went to 125, which means your free testosterone goes down as a man or as a woman. So I think that there are multiple things that are beneficial regarding this peptide hormone. Now, I'll frame that discussion briefly in the context of what we find within westernized populations today, which is that 90 to 95% of people, perhaps that number is slightly inflated, but I think it's pretty accurate, have some degree of metabolic dysfunction. And for those people, eliminating carbohydrates can be an important step toward improving that metabolic dysfunction. We'll get to this when we talk about seed oils. I'm not convinced that carbohydrates caused that metabolic dysfunction in many of those cases. I think they add fuel to the fire. There's this great metaphor of a spark and the tinder or you know, a spark or a fire and the actual wood you're burning in the fire. So there has to be a spark that starts things and carbohydrates might be the wood that gets burned when you have the spark. But the spark, I believe, is something much deeper at a metabolic level having to do with linoleic acid, breakdown products, et cetera. So in those people who are metabolically unwell because hypothetically of a lifetime of excess linoleic acid consumption, you end up with intolerance to carbohydrates. And in those people, I think cutting down on carbohydrates can be very important and being aware that different carbohydrates appear clinically and probably in terms of research to act differently in the human body, this being grains versus fruit and honey, which is interesting because most people would villainize uh, fruit, but we can talk about why I don't think it's a problem. So I think that there's a lot of framework to look at there. But when humans cut out carbohydrates long-term, I think they run into electrolyte issues. They run into hormonal issues. You can run into sleep issues having to do with tryptophan moving across the blood-brain barrier as a precursor for melatonin. So I think that decreasing carbohydrates or thinking about the quality of your carbohydrates is a critical step for most of the population. But if we assume that everyone needs to cut out carbohydrates, then we, then we obfuscate things because the difference between the 10% who are metabolically healthy and the 90% who are not is, is the answer. That's what's so critical. That's the key piece of the puzzle that I think gets lost in, um, in some keto circles. And, and that, to me, is what's really interesting. Because for those who are metabolically healthy, I think including carbohydrates in your diet can be an incredible benefit. And, and I've found it to be that way for me. When I included them, my muscles are more full, my testosterone is higher, my SHBG is lower, my sleep is better, my mood is better, my electrolytes are balanced, I don't get cramps anymore, I don't have to eat 25 grams of salt per day anymore. So the level of the kidney, the level of hormones, the level of glutathione, all these things are affected by insulin and our metabolism. 
And I think people over-demonize one substrate over the other, right? It's not that carb is bad, but excessive carb over a long period of time with a sedentary lifestyle is bad. And, and it's interesting that you sort of view it in a, in a way that carbohydrate is the wood that, that fuels the fire, because I think more and more data is pointing towards insulin resistance being the root cause of all these metabolic diseases. And it is unsure now whether if the excessive carb intake is causing the insulin resistance anymore, because a lot of data that is showing that may not be the case. It may be some form of inflammation. If, as you said, you know, it may be the seed oil. And, and as we're talking about that, um, you know, let, let's get, let's get into that and, and give us your thought around, you know, seed oil, insulin resistance, how does, which is, you know, chicken and egg, which one comes first? Um, let us know what, what, what your research shows. So I think that there's really good research to show that insulin resistance is caused by broken adipocytes, broken fat cells. And the fat cells cannot hyperplasia. They can only hypertrophy. So they can get bigger, but they can't divide. There's a lot of good research that in insulin resistance, you find fat cells in depots throughout the body, whether it's a subcutaneous adipose depot or a visceral adipose depot. Um, all of those fat cells appear to be broken. They cannot divide. They can only get bigger. So this is a little bit like that character in Monty Python that just keeps eating and eating and eating and eventually explodes. That's kind of what's happening to the fat cells in our body for some reason, which we'll get to in a moment. But if we take it back, it's fat cells that are broken. And we see this in insulin resistance. We see very clearly that there are adipokines being released from fat cells, that there's inappropriate levels of non-esterified fatty acids, free fatty acids being released into the blood circulation by fat cells. This is what happens when we fast, which creates physiologic appropriate insulin resistance at the level of the muscle. But this is also what happens in pathological insulin resistance, where people are not fasting, they are eating, there is insulin, but the cells are resistant to insulin. This is to be uh, made in contradistinction to a physiologic insulin resistance of fasting where there is no insulin and there is high levels of uh, non-esterified fatty acids. That's appropriate insulin resistance. But we get that situation because the fat cells break and they release these mediators into the circulation, lipokines, non-esterified fatty acids, which tell the muscle cells, tell the liver, probably tell the brain, hey, refuse the actions of insulin. And then we know what happens at the cells with IRS1 and the insulin receptor and all this decoupling. It's, it's very well laid out. But if we trace it back and we ask why behind the why behind the why, we end up at the fat cell. So then the question becomes, what breaks fat cells? And there's really good, interesting evidence that it's that HNE, 4-HNE, 4-hydroxynonanol, is one of the culprits in breaking these fat cells. There's also interesting evidence that it may have to do with excess amounts of linoleic acid being incorporated into the cardiolipin in the mitochondria of these fat cells. And then there are also... <laughs> Really interesting biochemical hypotheses like Peter Dobromilski at uh, Hyperlipid has talked about this, the protons model, which is esoter pretty esoteric to discuss on a podcast like this, having to do with how many FADHs and NADH2s are produced when you have a breakdown of a polyunsaturated fatty acid versus a saturated fatty acid. But nevertheless, there are multiple mechanistic studies. There are multiple interventional studies that point to this idea that in people who are eating excess amounts of linoleic acid, that appears to be a major driver of breaking fat cells long-term. So that's all kind of esoteric and probably nebulous to people, but 
if we are really having an academic conversation about what causes insulin resistance, it, I think you have to question the role of seed oils in this process and look at it and say, they look really guilty. They look like there are some really strong mechanisms by which this could happen. And then we need to do more research to really fortify that, that hypothesis because, I mean, it, this is the major driver of, of our chronic illness today. There's no question. So I don't think that carbohydrates do it per se. I think that carbohydrates have other problems, especially when people select carbohydrates like gluten containing carbohydrates, which can damage the gut. We know that gluten is a lectin and can be looked at as a foreign immune particle in the gut, triggering damage-associated molecular patterns and pathogen-associated molecular patterns, DAMPs and PAMPs. We know that certain carbohydrates can be harmful to humans, probably for other reasons. White potatoes are part of the nightshade family. They contain lectins. There's lectins in peanuts that appear to be problematic. There's all sorts of research about this, which is kind of a separate discussion, things I've talked about in the past. Uh, in these lectins, these carbohydrate-binding proteins in certain uh, carbohydrate-containing uh, moieties that, that trigger the immune system. And I think that that is a problem for people. But separate from that, there's also high fructose corn syrup, processed sugar, which appears to be harmful for people for a variety of reasons, potentially affecting the satiety centers in the brain, probably through overloading us with dopamine. Um, but absent those things, if we have non-processed carbohydrates that don't have plant defense chemicals in them, things like fruit and honey, there's actually research that giving those to people with diabetes or insulin resistance can improve those conditions and the sequela of those conditions. There's a pretty well-known study done by Rick Johnson and his team where they took two groups of people with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which is a condition associated with insulin resistance. And in both groups, they cut out the processed fructose. So all the cakes, all the candies, all the sodas. But in one group, they gave them about 100 grams, 400 to 500 calories of fruit per day. And in the other group, they had no fruit. And the, the group that had the fruit actually lost more weight and did not have any decline or any abrogation, any loss of the insulin sensitization uh, that the other group had. So both groups did well. And the group that had the fruit did not have any loss of the benefits of cutting out the processed fructose. And they were eating four to 500 you know, grams of, uh, excuse me, four to 500 calories a day of fruit. And then there's studies with honey and diabetics that show that honey may actually have an insulin sensitizing effect. Now, honey is a carbohydrate. If you have a broken metabolism and you give someone honey, their blood sugar is going to go up. But it appears to be insulin sensitizing in some ways. There are, I think they've done oral glucose tolerance testing, perhaps insulin clamps with people giving them honey. They'll see their hemoglobin A1C go up, but they'll see their insulin sensitivity improve. So I don't think, I think it's important for people to understand the nuance, the devil's in the details. I don't think fruit and honey cause diabetes. I think that fruit and honey will raise your blood sugar if you're diabetic, and you don't have to eat a ton of it. I don't think you really need to eat any of it if you're diabetic. We can talk about different levels of carbohydrate incorporation to the human diet based on where you are on a metabolic health spectrum. But I think that it's important for people to understand that, that I don't think those are the major drivers of these issues. I think it's the, the inappropriate consumption of linoleic acid in the human body that is driving things at the level of fat cells, at the level of mitochondria, that's really creating the havoc in the metabolic engine that we're driving. And I think evolutionary as well, like in terms of the, the proportion of micronutrients that we consume, having high fat and high sugar um, in our diet is, is not necessarily something that is natural. 
um, it, it, from an evolutionary point of view, because, you know, when, when did we ever have access to this much carbs and fats at the same time? And as they, you know, sort of dwell further down into what kind of fat that is actually, is it every fat is equal or is it, you know, different? Then we know, you know, there are different types of carbs that, that may cause the damage. There are different types of fats that might cause the damage. And for the longest time as well, uh, polyunsaturated fats have been sort of posed as this this poster, you know, child um, as as the good fats and and omega six and omega three. And we know that omega three uh, plays a big role in a structural um, uh, structural uh, integrity as well as uh, uh, building blocks of of the brain and. Then we found out that omega-6, which is, you know, linoleic acid and all of that, it becomes bad. So, so, it, it, so my question to you is, when do we even know that between three and six, three is the better one, six is the, the bad one? And when does this all begin? When do we begin to suspect that? Yeah, like, like why? Like, it was not until maybe three, four years ago that I started hearing this. And then there are more studies coming out showing that it's the imbalance of three to six ratio rather than the absolute number that is causing the damage in the body. Well, I think it's both, actually, um, for a variety of reasons. But there was research done in the 60s the Minnesota Coronary Trial, Sydney Diet Heart, Rose Corn Oil Trial, Margarine Study, those were done in the 60s. It's just that they, they weren't perfectly done studies, and so they don't get the respect they deserve today. There was also the LA Veterans Study, the Finnish Hospital Study. There were multiple studies comparing saturated fat and polyunsaturated fat from 60, 70 years ago. Uh, it's just that they were, they've been buried. And, you know, Chris Ramsden at the National Institutes of Health did did a great thing by going down into the basement of one of the researchers' sons or grandchildren to find the actual data and republish it. And Chris Ramsden had to republish analyses of Sydney Diet Heart and Minnesota Coronary Trials. And those were interventional trials. Those were randomized, controlled. I believe Minnesota Coronary was blinded. It was probably, I think it was double-blinded. And they compared the cardiovascular effects, the long-term morbidity and mortality effects of polyunsaturated versus saturated fat in these individuals. Now, again, these are not perfect trials. In Minnesota coronary trial, <clears throat> this was done in a mental health institution. <clears throat> so the patients were going in and out of the hospital. But it's probably the best trial that we are ever going to have. And it very clearly showed that those patients who were given hamburger patties with polyunsaturated fats versus hamburger patties with saturated fats the polyunsaturated fat group did way worse in terms of cardiovascular disease and death, morbidity, mortality. So that's just the old interventional trials. We need another one, but I don't know if it'll ever be done because we have this big boogeyman today of the ApoB question, the LDL molecule. And what we know pretty clearly, unfortunately, or it's not really unfortunate, it just is what it is. What we know is that polyunsaturated fats will lower LDL. So 
the mainstream medical establishment looks at polyunsaturated fats as a good thing. And if you look at the 2020 to 2025 United States governmental guidelines, if you look at the AHA, the American Heart Association, they're all recommending, quote, vegetable oils. They're all recommending canola, corn, sunflower, safflower oil. They all want you to have these oils because it will lower your ApoB. What is being missed and is in front of everyone's face, and this I'm incredulous, is that while they lower LDL, which is something we have known for a very long time, we now have more advanced lipid markers like oxidized LDL or oxidized phospholipids on the ApoB particle. We have a particle called LP little a that we didn't know about 70 years ago, lipoprotein little a. We have LPPLA2, lipoprotein PLA2, uh, phospholipase A2. And what we know is that these seed oils raise all of those things. So if you give someone, and there are very clearly done interventional trials to show that if you give someone more linoleic acid in their diet, LPPLA2, which is a marker of endothelial inflammation and problems within the arterial wall, will go up. If you give someone more linoleic acid, their oxidized LDL goes up. Their LP little a goes up. And those, especially LP little a and oxidized LDL, specifically oxidized phospholipids on ApoB, those are much better predictors of cardiovascular disease than LDL. And what we know pretty clearly now, and this is a problem because our lipid community is a little bit, I don't know what word to use. They're a little bit um, calcified, petrified. Uh, they, the, the, the thinking doesn't change very quickly, and, and I can talk about why, but it, it's, it's challenging because they, they just want to focus on lowering ApoB without understanding that the context in which that ApoB exists is so important. And you cannot ignore the risk um, that you have when you increase oxidized LDL. And I think what the lipid community misses is that ApoB may not be a risk factor for cardiovascular disease at all in insulin-sensitive individuals. So what we talked about at the beginning of the podcast is this notion that perhaps 90% of the population is insulin resistant. So it's not surprising that in studies, ApoB may associate, right? We can't really draw causative inference. No one's ever going to do an interventional trial with ApoB containing particles. This is LDL, VLDL primarily. So we just can make associations. But I think that the medical community misses the forest for the trees. And just because ApoB may associate in a broad swath of people with increased cardiovascular disease does not mean that it's causal or the proximate driver of cardiovascular disease. And so this is really important. And I don't, we don't need to go far down the, the ApoB rabbit hole unless you want to. But the problem is that seed oils lower ApoB. Mm-hmm. And because we're confused and we ignore the fact that ApoB probably doesn't cause atherosclerosis at, at the beginning, it's not a proximate driver, it just gets associated. And it probably isn't a problem at all for people who are insulin sensitive we get confused about seed oils. And the reason they're recommended is essentially because they lower ApoB, which is, so it's all, you can't really talk about seed oils without talking about lipid, lipids and cardiovascular risk. But it's, it's, a, it's a very frustrating thing. And, but we know very clearly they increase other markers at the same time. And it makes sense because why, why would you be surprised that putting more of a fragile polyunsaturated oil omega-6, linoleic acid, multiple double bonds into an LDL particle would make it more susceptible to oxidation and then make it more susceptible to being engulfed by a macrophage in the subintimal space, in the endothelial space within the arterial wall. So 
there's a lot going on here. But your original question was omega-3 and omega-6. So let me, let me circle back to that. I'm, I got a little off track. I'm sorry. So oh, no, I think no, no, that, no. that was super interesting. Yeah, go ahead. I think that omega-6s are problematic for that reason, because they cause increased oxidation of LDL particles, leading to LP little a, lipoprotein PLA2. But they also inhibit the production of omega-3s in the human body. So most people in the population don't get much EPA and DHA, which are the long-chain omega-3s, icosapentaenoic acid and docosahexaenoic acid, things found in animal fat, egg yolks, butter, bone marrow, uh, fatty fish. Most of the population doesn't get much of that. Most of the population might get a little bit of alpha-linolenic acid, which is a shorter-chain omega-3 fatty acid, which must be, which must be converted into EPA and DHA. But to get to EPA and DHA, which appear to be critical long-chain omega-3s, it has to go through a series of elongases and desaturase enzymes. Now, those are a common pathway shared with omega-6 metabolism. So linoleic acid must go through those same elongases and desaturases to become arachidonic acid and all the other things that a linoleic acid becomes in the human body, some of which are valuable. But the omega-6 pathway, for whatever reason, seems to take priority because when people have excess amounts of linoleic acid, or perhaps it's just because we eat so much more linoleic acid than any amount of omega-3 in our diet, because linoleic acid is so much more available now in seed oils, very little of that omega-3, those EPA and DHA molecules, I think get made in many humans who are just getting some ALA in their diet. So I think that benefits of omega-3 may be confusing because you're just undoing all of the harms of omega-6 or not undoing all the harms, but you're bypassing some of the harms by giving people extra excess omega-3. Don't be confused. And I think that it, people don't realize that there are harms to excess omega-3 also. I mean, we know that having lots of even these long chain omega-3 polyunsaturated fatty acids in the human body can cause issues as well bleeding problems, et cetera. It can cause issues. So I don't think excess amounts of omega-3 are valuable or important, and I think they're harmful for humans. So there's so many ways we can go with this, but the, the recommendations that I've heard people make on prominent podcasts to get four plus grams of omega-3 per day, I think that's dangerous for humans and not evolutionarily consistent. I don't think we need massive amounts of omega-3 fatty acids. I think if you're getting uh, real food from animals, that being animal fat, which we're all afraid of because it raises ApoB a little bit, right? But that animal fat has EPA and DHA, egg yolks, liver. Uh, the heart has a good epicardial fat on it. If you're eating real heart, you can get fat there. You can get fatty fish as long as it's low mercury. You can even eat, you know, brain from animals if you're out hunting and, and you're not in a place where there's prions, which is you know, a whole separate discussion, but there's plenty of omega-3 in the food chain in real foods, and I don't think you want to be getting it from fish oil, which is a whole other discussion. So that's a little bit of omega-3 versus omega-6, and the benefits of omega-3, I think, may be that they circumvent the problem of their formation by omega-6, but I don't think you'd want to have a ton of fish oil and still eat a lot of seed oils. That, to me, is a very bad proposition. It may solve the EPA-DHA issue, but I think you're still going to end up with broken fat cells because of all that excess linoleic acid in the body. I think the ideal place for humans, and this should not come as a surprise, uh, is to do something like, I think this is the tricky part of this discussion, right? We always come back, or we often come back to 
thinking about what we've done as humans historically, evolutionarily, and what foods would we have eaten? I think we would have had a small amount of linoleic acid in animal fat, 2% of our calories perhaps, not the 10 to 15% of our calories that we eat today. We would have had a small amount of omega-3 in our animal fats, occasional eggs, and that would have been the balance. I don't think we need to have tons of omega-3, and I definitely don't think we should have tons of omega-6. Yeah, that was one of the questions I was going to ask you from a physician point of view. What would you recommend? What is not too much, right? What is the ideal amount of omega-6, omega-3, which you already answered, which is amazing. Um, another thing I wanted to address is what you talked about ApoB being an association and not a causation. Um, I interviewed Dr. Rob Cyrus a couple of episodes ago, and he explained very nicely from a mechanistic point of view how LDL and all these lipids are essentially, you know, the role of LDL in atherosclerosis and, and, and blockage of, of um, the arteries is essentially a defense mechanism, is essentially a mechanism to overcome the damage um, of the blood vessel walls to begin with. So, um, you know, they are not necessarily the thing that caused the heart attack, but they are there to actually try to fix that the damaged wall. And his theory is that the insulin resistance and inflammation is what caused the, the wall to damage uh, to begin with. Do you agree on that? Yeah, I think that's, that's, that's close to what I would say is going on. There are probably always going to be damaging things happening to our arteries and our bodies. We know that at the bifurcations of our arteries, there's a high amount of pressure and turbulence, and that can denude the endothelium. So when you were a kid, when I was a kid, we were riding bikes and skateboards, and you were always getting a skinned elbow or a knee. It's the same in our arteries. We're always exposed to toxins, whether it's a diesel truck or a little bit of a heavy metal or somebody smoking on the sidewalk or maybe, maybe someone listening to the podcast is smoking. There are lots of things that can damage our arteries. Insulin resistance can, can cause a problem too. And so the body is constantly repairing the inside of our arteries. So there is this perspective being discussed now by prominent people in the health space, doctors, saying that everyone develops atherosclerosis and therefore everyone should have a very low ApoB. And I disagree with this. I think that everyone may have some degree of a lipid in inclusion within the arterial wall, what we might call a fatty streak, but we all have scabs on our body. And I don't think that that means that every fatty streak is going to develop into a pathological inflamed atheroma that will rupture or stenose that occlude the artery because it becomes so big. I think to get to that level of pathology in the arterial wall, you must, you must have some level of insulin resistance because what do we know about diabetics? Diabetics lose toes, they lose feet, they lose limbs due to improper wound healing. We know that the immune systems of diabetics, those who are insulin resistant, and I use the word diabetes as a proxy for insulin resistance, it's a continuum of course, but any degree of insulin resistance will impair the actions of our immune system. And what does our immune system do? It fights invaders, but it's also involved in the process of wound healing at every level of our body, whether it's a wound in my mouth, a wound on my knee, a wound in my elbow, or a wound inside of my arteries. And so I believe that what happens is that diabetics get wounds in their arteries just like anyone else, and they have impaired wound healing. If you have someone who has severe insulin resistance, they can have a pimple that turns into an abscess. And it's the same thing. That, I think, is a great metaphor for what happens in the arteries of diabetics. You have a pimple, which, okay, 
you have a scab, you have a cut on your skin, diabetics can get a cut on their foot and end up losing the whole foot. They don't have proper wound healing. So if you want those little cuts and bruises inside your arteries, which we're all going to get by living as humans with 120 millimeters of mercury in our arteries, or more than that, when you're working out, before this podcast, I was hitting a punching bag, or if I'm out surfing and I'm paddling for a wave, the pressure in my arteries is going to go up. When you're working out, you have a high blood pressure. It's going to cause trauma to your arteries and then your body fixes it. And so as part of the healing process, I think that that LDL, that ApoB-containing particle, might certainly get in, pulled into that arterial wall. LDL particles deliver valuable nutrients. I mean, that's what they do in the human body. They deliver phospholipids to make cell membranes. They deliver precursors, cholesterol, the steroid cholesterol molecule being a precursor for hormones, triglycerides. Like these are valuable building blocks. That's what LDL does. LDL doesn't carry a bomb. It carries building blocks. It's a bus full of laborers. It's a bus full of carpenters and electricians and, and you know, bricklayers and people that do mortar in buildings. They, and it's delivering those people to a construction site in your body. And it's not always delivering those people to an artery. It could be delivering those people to your testicles or your brain or your, uh, your adrenals to make hormones. So obviously this is a, this is a metaphor, but this is a valuable thing. And, and so I think what's happening is that LDL gets pulled into those situations. And isn't it possible that in people who are insulin resistant, they're going to have more LDL in their circulation because of changes in the LDL receptor with insulin resistance, and that that higher level of LDL might associate with more LDL getting pulled into plaques, and those plaques are not really healing properly, so it certainly could look like LDL is involved in atherosclerosis. But there, there's a piece missing, and it's the proximate cause. I think that this is where the lipid, the lipid hypothesis fails Unless you can show me, unless these physicians can show me that LDL causes damage to the endothelial wall or actually initiates a plaque, we have a problem. Because just because LDL is involved in the plaque doesn't mean that ApoB is causing the problem. And if you look at the literature, it's very clear that in individuals who have markers that would suggest insulin sensitivity, things like high HDL, low triglycerides, or low fasting insulin, guess what? LDL, it doesn't really have any sort of relationship to cardiovascular disease. And, and that, to me, is missed so often. And these, these physicians will point to Mendelian randomizations or genome-wide association studies, which can easily be flawed because of associations between genes. If you have an LDL receptor polymorphism, that's going to affect the way your macrophages are taking in this LDL. So the other thing I always come back to with LDL that helps people conceptualize this is if ApoB is truly a problem, is truly a causal factor in atherosclerosis, then why don't we get atherosclerosis in our veins? Why do we only get atherosclerosis in our arteries? And in anyone, even the most brittle diabetic with rampant cardiovascular disease, you will not find atherosclerosis in a vein because a vein is a low-pressure conduit. But we know that the exact same amount of ApoB is circulating in a vein as it is in an artery. It's a continuous circulation. But if that LDL is so harmful and so injurious to the arterial wall, well, the endothelial wall in a vein is exactly the same as an artery. So why is it not harming a vein? The only time you get atherosclerosis in a vein is when you use a vein in the arterial circulation. 
uh, coronary artery bypass circulation, where we take the popliteal vein or the saphenous vein from the leg and we put it into a high pressure circulation. And in that case, it becomes atherosclerotic very quickly. But if it's in the venous circulation of low pressure and it's not getting bumps and bruises, it's not getting endothelial damage, that LDL doesn't do anything. There's this idea that somehow there's a concentration gradient and more ApoB in the circulation means more ApoB going into the arterial wall. Well, then why isn't there a concentration gradient driving ApoB into the venous system, into the venous walls, causing atherosclerosis there? Again, there's multiple levels to look at this at, but it's very interesting, but you can't really talk about the seed oils without talking about atherosclerosis and ApoB. But yes, I do think LDL is probably involved in some healing, and it's a fundamental or deep uh, deficiency or defect in our ability to heal when we develop insulin resistance. So now we're kind of back almost full circle with this, this really, really important intention to not become insulin resistant because not only will you likely become fat and, and sick, you probably will have a heart attack too. Yeah, I really love the example that you put in in terms of arteries versus veins and why don't we get, you know, blockage in our veins. That's a great example and a great question to pose to researchers, physicians, cardiologists alike to really look into what is actually causing the damage to begin with. <clears throat> and I, I think a lot of people also see fat as this very bad thing that we humans just have to deal with, you know, because they think, okay, if I want to look good, I have to have low fat body fat percentage or fat is causing inflammation or fat is causing insulin resistance. But most of the time, this fat, quote unquote, that they are talking about is mainly um, storage fat, adipose tissue that is excess. But what they don't realize is the importance, like you said, importance of lipids and fats in everything inside our body. Every cell, almost every cell in our bodies, the membrane, cell membrane is made up of phospholipids, bilayer. That itself, it's, it's fat. All these uh, hormones um, that are fat-soluble needs those fat in order to be uh, produced and also circulated within the body. So all these are building blocks, like you said, um, that are important for our uh, functional uh, aspect of, of the organs of the body and the system. So... I think people should sort of look at it, you know, in, in a in a new light with regards to, you know, learning more about the biochemistry and the physiology of human body, of what the different fats are and how can you optimize the fat intake and the types of fat that you take in so that you can optimize your health. Yeah, I think there is perhaps no no more important decision that we make as humans in our health other than the type of fat that we take in. There is this idea that weight loss is simply a calorie deficiency. And at some level, that's true. But what gets lost in that discussion, if you take that simple stance, is that different types of fat affect our body differently. Even though a gram of linoleic acid is nine calories, according to the canonical model, that one gram of linoleic acid probably has different quote-unquote hormonal effects um, in the human body than, than a gram of saturated fat, presuming that we're talking about a saturated fat like stearic acid or palmitic acid. I mean, these are interesting things. These fats change our physiology. So every macronutrient is not created equally. Just like we know 
Some amino acids affect the body differently than others. Leucine, isoleucine, valine, the branched-chain amino acids, the importance of getting enough leucine for optimal muscle protein synthesis. I've talked about this on Instagram, that, that humans need about 50 grams of leucine per pound of body weight per day to have optimal muscle protein synthesis. Now, in order to get optimal muscle growth, you must have a stimulus. You must lift something or do pull-ups or do something hard with your body. But if you don't have 50 grams of leucine per pound of body weight, your muscles will not grow adequately. And so how do you get 50 grams of leucine per pound of body weight? I'm 165 pounds, which means I need about eight grams of leucine per day. I can get that in eight ounces of red meat or eight cups of lentils. <laughs> and that assumes that the leucine in the lentils is as bioavailable as the leucine in, in the red meat, which is probably not true either. So, but that's just one specific amino acid. All the amino acids are not created equally, and perhaps that's not the best analogy, but we also know that, you know, that there are differences in the way these things affect us, and the fats, we see it especially. Linoleic acid, very different than EPA, DHA, even different than conjugated linoleic acid. This is a question that comes up a lot. So conjugated linoleic acid is actually a trans fat. Most of the fats we've talked about today are cis isomers. But conjugated linoleic acid is a trans fat, but not all trans fat is bad. Just the trans fat that it gets made when you partially or fully hydrogenate, I guess you have to partially hydrogenate a vegetable fat to get a trans fat. And, and that, that appears to be problematic for humans, again, through what looks to be a, quote, hormonal effect. There's interesting data that <clears throat> trans fats appear to inhibit the formation of prostacyclin in the human body. Prostacyclin is an eicosanoid that causes arterial vasodilation. And the reverse, the opposite of prostacyclin is thromboxane. So there is some evidence that linoleic acid derivatives increase thromboxane, which causes increased clotting. And then trans fats, which can happen easily with the breakdown of linoleic acid, inhibit the production of prostacyclin. This eicosanoid, that causes arterial vasodilation. So these, these fats have different effects in the human body. And it's such an interesting conversation because I don't think there's... It's obviously a very nerdy conversation, but you cannot talk about fats without talking about ApoB. And so I think we're talking about something that lies at the crux of Western medicine at this point, because now we're talking lipids and cardiovascular disease. We're talking autoimmunity and immunity and wound healing and obesity and satiety, which we didn't get to, but we probably should. Uh, it's such a fascinating conversation. And, and it all is wrapped in this, again, we're sort of framing it in like, what did humans do evolutionarily? There is no way that for 350,000 years of homo sapien evolution, we would have gotten the amount of linoleic acid that we're getting today. Because I did a reel on this on Instagram. You would have to eat two pounds of soybeans to get five to seven tablespoons equivalent of soybean oil. 60 ears of corn to get five tablespoons of corn oil. You'd have to eat two and a half pounds of sunflower seeds to get five tablespoons of sunflower oil. And, and the average American eats the equivalent of five to seven tablespoons of seed oils per day, whether that's sunflower or corn or whatever, right? So that's, that's the equivalent. It's a completely evolutionarily inappropriate conversation uh, to be, you know, it's just an evolutionarily inappropriate uh, behavior for humans to make. And that, that, gets my, that gets me thinking, we can't lose where we've come from as humans. It's just a valuable perspective. And then you know, what else should we be doing that we've been doing for 350,000 years as humans? Well, we've been eating animals. We've been eating them nose to tail. We've been eating organs. 
we probably shouldn't not eat. We probably should eat liver. You know, we probably shouldn't not eat liver. We probably should eat some heart. There's unique nutrients in the organs too. Um, we probably shouldn't eat a ton of leaves. This is my whole sort of thinking, right? Uh, because we don't eat a lot of leaves historically, which is another discussion. But it's interesting to think like what we've come from as humans is probably a good blueprint for where we can go today. Who knows what humans will be in uh, 10,000 years or 50,000 years. Who knows if Homo sapiens will even be around. Maybe we will merge with machines and transhumanism will happen. But um, I think that right now it's pretty clear to say that we're not well adapted to certain types of carbohydrates, like gluten-containing carbohydrates. We're not well adapted to this amount of linoleic acid. Maybe in 50,000 years, it'll be like the DeLorean in, in Back to the Future, and we'll just chug vegetable oil, and that'll be the optimal fuel for humans. But right now, it's horrible for us. Yeah, no, no. I love, I love the calorie in, calorie out conversation and discussion and argument because, you know, while it is true, assuming that your energy expenditure, your daily ex energy expenditure is the same, then you need the calorie deficit in order to lose weight. Yes, that's correct. But as you said, different substrates will affect you differently, like different fats affect you differently, but also different carbs and, and different macronutrients affect your gut health, affect your mood, affect your mental state. If you end up feeling fatigue and end up being less active than you would normally do, then obviously that balances out that energy expenditure and hence you need more calorie deficit. And then that screws up the whole thing, right? Um, so... One thing you know, uh, you said earlier that I was very interested in was you said we shouldn't get a lot of these omega-3 from um, fish oils. Care to elaborate? Sure. So omega-3 fatty acids are very unstable. At, at a strictly biochemical level, they're more unstable than omega-6s, meaning they will oxidize faster at any given temperature and pressure and amount of light and oxygen. So it is very delicate and dangerous to put fish oil out of the fish, to take fish oil out of a fish um, and to put it into a capsule. It's essentially just simply not a good idea, full stop, to put it in a liquid in a bottle. So seed oils which are mostly, not always the majority linoleic acid, but have anywhere from 20 to 65% linoleic acid, depending if you're talking to canola versus grapeseed at the high end or soybean. Those are going to oxidize on the shelf in a, uh, in a supermarket, creating trans fats, creating damaging derivatives for humans. They're going to oxidize much more quickly if you put them in a fryer and you heat them. They're going to break down into HNE. There's no fish oil on the shelf in a grocery store until you get to the health food aisle. And then you have an oil that is even more unstable than a seed oil. Doesn't have the same hormonal effects as linoleic acid, but it's even more unstable. And there's a bottle of fish oil on the shelf, whether it's, I forget who makes it, I can see it in my mind. And there's this cod liver oil on the shelf and it's just sitting there oxidizing. You take that to a lab and you run an, you run an analysis, you're going to see very, very high levels of lipid peroxides, of trans fats, of breakdown products of that, of that fish oil. It's incredibly unstable. It's perhaps a little bit better to put it into a capsule, but I still think it's dangerous for humans. You can't take these things out of their substrate. We shouldn't be squeezing fish to get the fish oil. <laughs> if you want fish oil, just eat fish. 
and realize that a lot of fish comes with heavy metal contamination, so be aware. And realize that you can get, quote, the same omega-3s in an egg yolk or tallow or butter in amounts that I think are plentiful and adequate for humans. But if you really want omega-3s from fish, eat wild salmon. Um, eat something like that. But don't take the fish and squeeze it and process it. Obviously, that's not what happens, but you know how these things, because it's going to create damage to the fish oil. It's not stable. So they, you know, when I've taken fish oil in the past and I've done this, I get fish burps and fish burps are your body. I think I could be wrong about this. Someone can correct me, but I'm pretty sure the fish burp is your body saying this is rancid. right? And I'm burping this back up. I get the same thing with sardines and anchovies. And I I think this can't be good. Like, I don't think it's good to fish is, you know, fish spoils. I mean, I have heart in my fridge. And if that, I don't cook that heart within two to three days, I can tell it's going off a little bit. The same with liver. Like these organs need to be eaten fresh. If you put fish in your fridge, you better cook that within a day, man. That fish as fresh as possible. That's why nobody goes to a seafood restaurant that says sort of fresh fish. Or, you know, yeah. this is, you know, you're, you go to a seafood restaurant on Thursday and you say, hey, what was Monday's catch? Do you have any of the catch from three days ago? Because your body sort of intuitively knows that shit spoils, man. Nobody wants three-day-old fish. Nobody even wants three-day-old liver. So why are you eating fish oil in a capsule that is months and months old? And why are you spooning fish oil out of a jar that is even more rancid? So we have to be very careful. And there's studies that show that, that fish oil does the same thing, and it can create oxidized phospholipids and probably can create oxidized LDL in the same way. So, yes, we need omega-3s. Fish oil is not the way to get it, in my opinion. Does that make sense? What, yeah, yeah, absolutely. What about when you cook, like, fish, right? Would that, would that then, you know spoil the, the the fats in there you know, i've never any seen other food. Yeah. yeah i've never seen a study to assay that and i think that my suspicion is that this is just my hypothesis that when it's in the whole food form there are things in the matrix that prevent the oxidation while you're cooking it we know that the fish is going to have vitamin e and and coenzyme q10 and, and other things in there so that maybe it's more stable in the matrix right that's my hypothesis I, if anyone is aware of a study that shows that i've always been curious about that wouldn't cooking yeah. fish oxidize the, the, the fatty acids? And then the same thing, it, this is one of the reasons that I've always wondered, should you cook an egg yolk or should you just eat the egg yolk raw? You know, there's a lot of cholesterol in an egg yolk and we don't want oxidized cholesterol. We don't want oxysterols. They appear to be problematic for humans. Exactly. Um, and so do you get oxidized cholesterol when you cook an egg? And there might, maybe I've seen... People from Weston A. Price talk about that a little bit, that cooking an egg yolk doesn't oxidize the cholesterol, which would kind of make sense evolutionarily, that the egg has something in the matrix and membrane that prevents it from being oxidized when you cook it. And humans have been cooking meat for, I mean, a million years. I just heard Joe Rogan on his podcast talking about evidence that we were cooking fish 750,000 years ago. These are probably, you know, homo habilene uh, species. We're cooking fish. I mean, fire has been around for a million years. So we've been getting oils that are heated, but I don't know. I mean, when I cook, when I cook bone marrow, I'll grill bone marrow. And, you know, the top of the bone marrow gets a little bit uh, like browned, but the inside, a lot of it is still just gelatinous and not actually that cooked. Uh, when I cook a steak, the fat in the steak is not 
completely, you know, it's not completely, it's still a little bit, you know, I would say native, quote unquote. So, but I've always wondered how much oxidation happens to the oils in these food when we cook them. And, and is it something that our body can deal with? Um, is it, is it, I think it's happening less because you have less linoleic acid in these foods. So let's just talk about this real quickly. Tallow, 2% linoleic acid, butter, 2% linoleic acid, ghee, 2% linoleic acid, coconut oil, probably 2% linoleic acid, avocado oil, 15 to 20% linoleic acid, olive oil, anywhere from 8 to 25% linoleic acid, canola oil, 25% linoleic acid. I'm a little fuzzy on these next ones. Corn oil, 35%. Soybean oil, 45%. Grapeseed oil, 55% to 65% going up from there. So sunflower oil, 60%, I think, give or take, 55, 60% linoleic acid. So just to circle back on this, this action item for people, I think that you want to get the smallest amount of linoleic acid in your diet possible. Not zero, because I do think you should eat liver and heart and meat and egg yolks. But when I do my diet on chronometer, so I'm going to, I don't know when this podcast is going to come out, but I have a podcast coming out and a YouTube video. The YouTube channel is just carnivore MD where I take my diet for two days and I put it into chronometer. Chronometer is a program. You're probably familiar with this. Your audience is familiar. It breaks it down into many of the micro and macronutrients. And when I put my diet into chronometer, I'm getting 1.3% of my calories from omega-6. 1.3. I think the goal for most people should be below 2.5% of your calories from linoleic acid. But that was just an interesting exercise for me to see that, that I'm getting 1.3% from linoleic acid because most of the fat I'm getting is, is tallow or butter at this point, a little egg yolk here and there. So that's important for people to understand that while I think avocado oil and olive oil are much better than seed oils, they're still increasing the amount of linoleic acid in your diet and you're not getting animal fat. And in a tongue-in-cheek way, I'll also say that most people put olive oil on a salad, and I don't really see the point of eating salads too much in our life. That's a whole separate part of my um, sort of thinking in general. But the other thing I'll say about avocado oil and olive oil, because people will ask this question, is that, that the quality is variable. That if you, I did a reel on this on Instagram. If you, there's plenty of articles. If you just look up olive oil quality or avocado oil purity you know, quality. You'll find lots of articles. I found one showing that the majority of avocado oil is cut with seed oils. Some avocado oil was entirely soybean oil. It wasn't even avocado oil. It's just purely soybean oil. So these oils have become big business and the avocado oil industry is very poorly regulated. It's also very oxidized. So if you have a connection in Italy and you want to go to Italy and they're going to press the olives in front of you, Eat some olive oil. If you know a really good producer that's going to show you peroxide values on the olive oil and is going to ship it to you in a cold container in a green glass bottle, it's probably okay to eat some here and there, and it's way better than seed oils. But if you're just buying olive oil at Costco in a green plastic container, I don't think that's great for humans either. And I would just say eat animal fat because when you eat animal fat, you're getting nutrients that are uniquely found in animal fats, things like stearic acid an 18-carbon saturated fat that has been shown in interventional studies in humans to turn on fat burning, to turn on beta oxidation, to cause mitochondria to fuse, and to uh, decrease serum acylcarnitines, uh, suggesting that they're incorporating fats and burning the fats for fuel. So stearic acid is incredible for humans and probably helps us lose weight. 
And that's only found in animal fats other than cocoa butter would be the plant source of stearic acid. But tallow, um, sp specifically suet, which is the kidney fat, has the highest amount of, of stearic acid. But there are beneficial fats in animal fat that you don't get in plant fat. The other one I'll just say, and I'm going off on a tangent, I'll stop and let you bring me back. The other thing, the other fat that nobody talks about are odd chain fatty acids. Most of the fats we've talked about today are 18, 16, 20, or 22 carbons. Odd chain, I mean, even chain. But odd chain fatty acids occur exclusively in animal fats, dairy, um, and they're, they're associated with some really valuable health outcomes, some improved health outcomes in humans. So I'd love to see some interventional studies with odd chain fatty acids. I don't know if anyone's done them, but I think that in the future we will see odd chain fatty acid supplements, which is a little silly because we should just eat animal fat, but I think odd chain fatty acid supplements will happen in the future, um, but you could just eat tallow or butter or ghee, raw milk, things like that. Right. So I've, I've, you know, for the sake of time, I've got two more sort of areas that I want to cover, if you don't mind, uh, Paul. Um, one is we were talking about satiety a little bit, and uh, and we know that for 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 for, for a fact that you know fats due to the calories and all of that and has a, a really strong effect on the satiety. Do you want to talk a little bit more on that? Yeah, I do. That's actually a really important point. Thank you. Um, there are some compelling data points suggesting that omega-6 fats, specifically linoleic acid, sabotage satiety. And in the nutrition world, many people will say that we are sicker today because we are eating more. This may be true. We appear to be eating 250 to 300 more calories per day than we did 50 years ago, and probably more than we did 100 years ago. But the question then becomes, why are we doing that? And I don't think we're doing that because we're just fatter, more gluttonous humans. We're doing that because something in our environment is sabotaging our satiety because humans have really good satiety mechanisms. Kevin Hall's group did a really interesting study where they took two groups of people in a metabolic ward and it was two weeks long and they matched the diets of these people for calories presented. This was an ad lib experiment. People could eat as much as they wanted, but the trays they were given at first were the same amount of calories the same macronutrient breakdown, the same fiber, the same sugar, the same salt, and the same caloric density. But one group of people got highly processed food, and one group of people got unprocessed food. So you can imagine unprocessed food, fruit, vegetables, meat, unprocessed. Processed food, probably processed bread, french fries, who knows, cakes, cookies, things like this. But they matched it for protein, fat, and carbohydrates. Over two weeks, the unprocessed food group loses two pounds and the processed food group gains two pounds in two weeks. What's going on there? It's ad lib. They can eat as much as they want. It's clear that the unprocessed food group eats less and you can see the processed food group eats more. Processed food group eats about 500 calories more per day because there's something going on. And what they could not match the two diets presented for was linoleic acid. Now, the researchers don't draw that conclusion, but they can't do it. If you look at their results, the unprocessed food group gets way less linoleic acid, and the processed food group gets more linoleic acid. That's not really the point of what I'm saying here. I'm just saying that we know that unprocessed food is much more satiating than processed food. So what's different about processed food than unprocessed food? Well, there's three things. Processed grains, processed sugar, and seed oils. Those are the three major things. If people avoid those things, I guarantee you'll lose weight, without a doubt. But you have to avoid them across the board. And that'll cause you to avoid all things that are processed food, but you'll also avoid things like salad dressings. 
chips, candies, cookies, cakes, crackers, all those have seed oils. So at another level, we can say these seed oils, linoleic acid specifically, break down in mammals into endogenous, endogenous cannabinoids. So anandamide and 2-AG. I think anandamide is, uh, is AEA and 2-AG is another endogenous cannabinoid. These are essentially binding to the CB1 receptor in the brain and potentially in the gut and causing us to be hungry. Many people listening to the podcast will have experience with exogenous cannabinoids, things like THC or CBD or cannabidivirin. And these do the same thing. That's why we get the munchies when we smoke marijuana and why we use drugs that are cannabinoids to give people who are undergoing cancer chemotherapy and they have loss of appetite. So what's very interesting is there's a surgery called a Roux-en-Y gastric bypass. And this is a fascinating surgery that I learned about in medical school and I learned about on my surgery rotations and I never really understood it because it's like a miracle surgery. You can do a Roux-en-Y gastric bypass on someone and overnight, they become more insulin sensitive and overnight, they have satiety improvements. Overnight. And there are multiple surgeries that they do for people in bariatrics where they change the size of the stomach. You can do lap banding, you can do a gastrectomy, which is often done because people have intractable ulcers or other reasons that you can cut the stomach, you can make a gastric sleeve. But none of those surgeries have the metabolic effects of a Roux-en-Y gastric bypass. So a Roux-en-Y gastric bypass cuts the stomach at the outlet. I believe it's called the pyloric sphincter, which is where the stomach leads into the duodenum, the proximal duodenum. And it attaches that further down in the small intestine. So you bring up this blind loop of bowel. It makes like a Y. You bring up a blind loop of bowel and you connect the stomach to the jejunum or further down the duodenum. Does that make sense? So you're taking a blind loop of bowel. You're cutting the stomach from the duodenum. You have the stomach here. The duodenum comes off here. You bring up a blind loop of bowel and you connect it further down on the intestines. So what's really interesting is that these people can eat the same foods and they're more satiated. You can eat the same foods and they're not as insulin resistant. And they don't really give people much counseling regarding quality of food, which is a major problem with Western medicine. But what appears to be going on here is you're bypassing a lot of endogenous cannabinoid receptors in the gut. So in the human body, linoleic acid appears to be able to be converted at the level of the gut probably the proximal duodenum into endogenous cannabinoids, which are binding to cannabinoid receptors in the gut, in the proximal duodenum. And that can lead to problems with satiety. So you, if you bypass that, you create an improvement. Now, the problem is that over time, the human body adjusts and often you may develop an, an, you know, these endogenous cannabinoid receptors in the gut further down in the jejunum or the, you know, the distal duodenum. Well, you can do the same thing to someone by just limiting the amount of seed oils in their diet. You can give them the same sort of, quote, surgery and affect the way that they have satiety if these cannabinoid receptors are truly involved. So this is a really fascinating mechanism. I was never taught that in medical school, but it makes a lot of sense. And then we also know that at least in mice, it's very clear that, that these cannabinoids from linoleic acid absolutely sabotage satiety. And we see it in humans over and over. It may also happen at the level of the hypothalamus. So I think that there's a lot of evidence that points to these increased consumption of seed oils as a causative factor in the reason that we're eating more calories now. So then the calories in, calorie out pundits have to kind of scratch their head and go, oh, well, maybe there's something to this. And 
Maybe it's not just the fact that people are more gluttonous today or that we're, it's hyper palatable food. Well, why the, why the heck is it hyper palatable? What makes it hyper palatable? Is it potentially the fact that it's hijacking our brain and our guts into making us think that we're hungry um, for a lot of reasons? So there's something going on there. And I think that there's a lot of evidence suggesting that seed oils are hijacking satiety, which is perhaps one of the most insidious things they could possibly do because if you're hungry, you're going to eat. I've always felt like the way to lose weight is not to cut calories. The way to lose weight is to eat to being full, but to massively improve the quality of your food. To do just like they did in the Kevin Hall study, to make zero processed foods in your diet. Then you'll lose weight. End of story. Yeah, why treat the symptoms when you can, can treat the cause, right? And, and when you actually control your satiety, the... the, the Super interesting thing here is you are essentially doing it subconsciously or unconsciously because you, you don't even think about it. You're not, you know, actively or consciously decreasing your calories. You're not actively like doing more workout. You're pushing yourself harder. Obviously, all of those do help, but this is something that you can literally do it, avoid these um, uh, seed oils and improve your satiety level. And over time, you're just eating less um, while having, you know, the, the same energy level and, and do the same activities. So um, I want to respect your time here. Uh, <laughs> if you have anything to add, Paul, uh, please do. Uh, and after that, I want you to, um, I want to offer the platform to, uh, to you so that you can tell our listeners where can they find you and all of that. So, yeah, yeah. So I should also say before we wrap up that there are studies with, there are interventional studies in humans yeah. where people are given lower linoleic oils, linoleic acid oils in the interventional group, and the control oil is soybean oil. And the people in the interventional groups lose more weight than the soybean oil group. And they, there's another study in, I believe it's in um, India, where people have improvements in non-alcoholic fatty liver disease in the lower linoleic acid arms of the trials. So there are interventional trials now looking at weight loss, improvements in non-alcoholic fatty liver disease when you compare... Um, soybean oil as a control, 45, 50% linoleic acid to lower amounts of linoleic acid. In the interventional groups in these studies, they use canola oil with 20% linoleic acid, which is lower, but still not great. And then olive oil, which in this study had a very low amount of linoleic acid, 7% linoleic acid. So there's good studies that, that corroborate the hypothesis that linoleic acid is driving some of this satiety sabotage and that eliminating it could lead to essentially effortless weight loss in humans. And, and then you begin to think, okay, if it's all connected together, this makes a lot of sense. But at a high level, let's go back to what we said about processed foods and the Kevin Hall study. We know that processed foods are a nightmare for humans. I think very few people would debate that. I think that some people in the nutrition community would say, it doesn't matter that it's processed, it's just that they're eating more of those processed calories. And they would point to trials like the Twinkie trial, or that they would point to the Twinkie study where the guy loses weight eating Twinkies. But that's not a long-term trial, and you know the guy's going to be nutrient deficient, and he's certainly going to be hungry. He's, he's controlling. It's not an ad-lib study. If you're trying to lose weight by eating Twinkies, that's not an ad-lib study. It's not a representative of the real world. So yes, you can lose weight eating Twinkies, but nobody's doing OGTTs on him. Nobody's doing insulin clamp studies and looking at his insulin sensitivity. Nobody's looking at oxidized phospholipids on ApoB or gut health. So there's so many metrics that are missing in those studies, and I think that they're very myopic to offer those studies as some sort of a support for the fact that, quote, all foods fit. Um, that's a very in vogue thing to say in the dietetics world today, and I think it's absolute bullshit. Uh, all foods do not fit. 
there are foods that are healthy for humans and foods that are unhealthy for humans. And we can make uh, it's so much easier for those people listening to this podcast and in the nutrition and health space <clears throat> to educate people who need to hear this information as well. When we tell them, when we say to them, hey, these foods will sabotage your society. They're going to make your weight loss miserable. You're going to become nutrient deficient. You're going to have all sorts of other sequelae long term. Or these foods will give you nutrients, you know, and these foods will help you be more satiated and you will not be in calorie restricted prison. I don't know what else we need to talk about. It's just like that's, and it's connected. And then you also not become fat. Your insulin will get, your insulin sensitivity will improve. Your fat cells will, will go from broken to healthy. You will decrease your risk of cardiovascular disease and you'll be a healthier human. You'll, you'll have more sex because you'll have more libido. You'll look better. You'll get to do more things in your life. You get to play with your kids more. You get to go surf more and lift more weights and climb more rocks and do more hikes and do whatever you want in your life. It's like life just gets better when we align the way that we live with what we've done evolutionarily. Um, I think that that's such an interesting, elegant uh, synchronicity. Uh, the last thing I'll say is that I think a lot of people are talking about Chris Hemsworth right now because of this APOE4 thing. And there was a show that he was on. He was diagnosed on air, I believe, with APOE44 polymorphism. And though it's not completely connected to what we're talking about in this conversation, I do want to mention it because it is connected with insulin resistance. So there is a conversation about dementia and Alzheimer's um, that I think will happen now um, because of Chris Hemsworth. And I think that's a good thing. But I think that the bad part of this conversation is that it will be had in a mainstream fashion. It will, you know, what Chris Hemsworth was told on that show was that he has an eight to 10 times increased risk of Alzheimer's disease because of his APOE4-4 polymorphism. And I think that that's incorrect to say. I think that what should have been said is if you are part of the general population who is essentially not due to any fault of their own, you know, consuming health advice of the AHA and the U.S. government, and we've been made into zombies a little bit. If you're part of the 90% of the population that is zombified and eating whole grains and eating seed oils and is metabolically unhealthy, yes, you have an 8 to 10 times increased risk of Alzheimer's with APOE44. 8 to 10 times increased risk, 800 to 1,000%, essentially. But if you are part of the population that is metabolically healthy, that should not be ignored. We are the 10%, right? 10% of the population is metabolically healthy. 10% of the population apparently doesn't listen to this health advice. Um, if you are part of that population, then you probably don't have an increased risk of Alzheimer's with APOE44. And that's really, really important to make the distinction because that's a big deal. And so the question then becomes, how do you become a part of the healthy part of the population that is not insulin resistant, Chris Hemsworth. What are you going to do in your life? And is anyone saying to Chris Hemsworth, hey man, let's check your fasting insulin. Let's put a blood glucose monitor on you. I haven't seen the whole show. I don't know if they do that. If we are in the 10% of the population who are healthy, it's going to be a very different equation. We see this from groups in um, Central and South America, who have APOE44, the Nigerian Yoruba, the Bolivian Simene or Chimene. In both of those groups, APOE44 is associated with a decreased incidence of dementia with aging. And these groups maintain high levels of insulin sensitivity as they age. So APOE44 is not a causal death sentence, quote unquote, for Alzheimer's. 
What it does appear to do is make us more susceptible to the dangers of insulin resistance at the level of the brain and cholesterol transport and nutrient transport in the brain. So I think that the clear takeaway for people here is that you want to be insulin resistant. You want to, excuse me, I think the clear takeaway for people here is that you do not want to be insulin resistant. You want to be insulin sensitive. You want to be in the 10% of people who defy the norm when it comes to metabolic health in humans. And if you do that, a high ApoB, quote unquote, because you eat some saturated fat from animal foods is probably not a problem. Your hormones work better. You probably have a much lower risk of Alzheimer's regardless of your genotype. And, and I hope that someone says this to Chris Hemsworth um, and I hope that he gets that information because he seems to be very shaken by the news that he has this eight to 10 times risk of Alzheimer's. But I think it's not the whole story. And it's not the whole story with regard to ApoB. And it's not the whole story with regard to saturated fat. It's not the whole story with regard to all these things. And that's what is meaningful for me in the work that I do is I, I, I don't think I've got it all right. I would never believe that I know it all, but I, I want to help be a part of giving people more of the story. I want to be a voice that completes the story for people because I think that we are often told just part of the story and that leads us to um, less of life than we should be. I think we, we are entitled to, to a very rich life that can be well-lived and free from chronic disease and free from decrepitude for the vast majority of our lives. And uh, that's, that's the, that I think is the whole story. And I think that it, we know how to do that. We live like our ancestors, and that may sound trite, but I think it's wise and it makes sense. And how do we live like our ancestors? Well, we're still trying to figure it out. My hypothesis is that you want to eat meat, you want to eat organs, either fresh or desiccated, and I built a company, Hardened Soil, that makes desiccated organs if you can't get fresh organs. You want to eat animal fat, you want to have low amounts of linoleic acid, you want to eat fruit and honey if you're going to have carbohydrates, you want to avoid seed oils. And if you have access to raw dairy, you want to eat that. And that's what I think of as a quote-unquote animal-based diet. And that's sort of how I think humans can thrive. But I also want to frame everything that I do in my, in my work from the perspective of the fact that if you're thriving, don't change anything about your diet. You know, that, that if you're thriving, don't change anything. But if you're not thriving, it's time to question your assumptions about nutrition and health and all of these things and, and ask questions about mainstream recommendations for lowering LDL, mainstream recommendations to eat tons of grains, mainstream recommendations to avoid red meat, mainstream recommendations to eat polyunsaturated seed oils rather than animal fats. Um, all of these, I think, should be questioned for humans, and I think it will lead us to a richer life. So I think that's kind of the summary of the way I think about things. And, and you just open a whole kind of worms as well, because you just make me think about genetics autoimmune disease and we can talk about that in a whole different episode and, and it's a whole episode worth of how genetics play a role in epigenetics play a role and and nutrition play a role in shaping all of that the different promoters different transcription factors and all of that um so you know it was a very very insightful informative um episode thank you so much um paul um, and, and please let our listeners know where can they find you as well, um, your YouTube channel and all your social media. Uh, please go ahead. Uh, the YouTube channel is CarnivoreMD. Instagram is CarnivoreMD 2.0. Yeah, those are the main ones. Cool. Yeah, so guys, um, go ahead, follow, you know, follow Paul with all his content and his 
you know, the, the richness of his knowledge around this area and also his research around this area. Um, so uh, very, very um, pleasure of mine to have you, even though we are recording on Thanksgiving Day. Thank you for <laughs> the flexibility. Um, both of us are recording on Thanksgiving morning. So um, yeah, ha happy Thanksgiving and um, let's chat some more. Yeah, man, I'm, I'm grateful to be able to do this work. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me on the podcast. And thanks for helping us fight the good fight and complete the story. And happy Thanksgiving to everybody there. They're probably listening to this after Thanksgiving. Yes. But uh, as I'm going to go. I'm going to go eat some some red meat and some butter and some organs. And I'm get some hard and soil supplements in there and some desiccated testicle and some desiccated brain and then eat some, you know, fruit and, you know, celebrate with my family here in Costa Rica. So thanks, man. It's great to connect with you. Thank you. If you have enjoyed this episode, please like, share, and subscribe. And we welcome any comments or feedback in either the comment section or you can fill up the Google form provided in description. You can find us at HVMN or at Latmanso for myself on all social media platforms. Both HVMN Podcast and myself are powered by Ketone IQ, the most efficient way to elevate your blood ketone levels for optimal cognitive and physical performance as well as metabolic health. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.